0: Well, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Uh, that will be our text of this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through the book of Galatians together. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that what Paul has been doing in this letter is confronting false teachers who are presenting a false gospel. It's those who had come into Galatia after he had preached the genuine gospel and they had distorted that gospel by teaching the Galatians that in order to be saved, that they had to go back to the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, and they had to follow certain works and had to do these things in order to be saved. And Paul has been confronting that false teaching by explaining what genuine saving faith looks like. He's gone back to the Old Testament, back to Abraham, and shown how we become children of the promise, heirs to the promise, through faith in Christ alone. And so as he's presented this argument... He's going to shift a bit now in Galatians 5 and 6 and show what that saving faith then looks like. Uh, What it looks like not only to believe in the gospel, now what does it look like to live according to the gospel. And so we'll begin to look at that now as we look at Galatians 5. Uh, Today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read the text for us this Lord's Day. Remembering that this is God's holy word to His church. And this is what the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. but only faith working through love. If you would pray with me. Father, as we sing of the day when our faith will be made sight, help us to better understand what that faith is all about. Help us to understand what it truly means to have saving faith. And Lord, I pray that you would do a work today that only you can do through the power of your Spirit that for any here who's yet to come to saving faith in Christ, that in these moments, Lord, you might help the deaf to hear and the blind to see and the dead to be raised to life in response to the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As Paul has been writing to the Galatians, and as we've been studying this letter together, the principal question has been this. Uh, What is saving faith? What does it genuinely look like to have saving faith in Christ and in Christ alone? Uh, These Judaizers had come into Galatia and they had taught that in order to have true saving faith, you needed to have works. And this was not so uncommon in the early church. There were many times when people would come into the church and would teach this type of false gospel. So, for example, in the book of Acts, you see in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, this was the question that was being dealt with. For example, we read in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, this is very much what the Judaizers were doing in Galatia. They were saying that among many things in the ceremonial law, among many things in the Old Testament, that if you didn't participate in this one, you couldn't truly be a part of the people of God. Paul responds to this false teaching and false gospel by teaching that in order to have a saving faith, we need to trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And that's why it says here in Galatians 5.1, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. And do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He's basically saying, now that you found freedom in Christ, why would you ever want to go back to this burden of the law? And so he will spend the rest of this letter unpacking for the Galatians, and we will spend the rest of this letter unpacking for ourselves what it really looks like then to have saving faith. And what it principally comes down to is this. Saving faith is having trust in Christ. Tim Keller wrote an excellent book years ago called The Reason for God. It is a wonderful book for believers. It's a great book to give non-believers who are open to having a conversation about God, the reason for God. And in that, he says this, the faith that changes the life and connects to God is best conveyed in the word trust. And then Keller gives this illustration. He says, imagine you were on a side of a cliff, you're walking along a path and suddenly you lose your footing and you begin to fall. And as you begin to fall, you're able to look over and see there's a a branch sticking out from that cliff within your arm's reach. And you look to that branch and you know intellectually, if I will grab hold of that, it will save me and I'm not going to fall and die. But if all you do is know that and you don't actually do it, you don't trust well, then all hope is lost. It says at the same time, imagine if you were on that cliff, on that rock side, you begin to fall and you look over and see that, that firm branch, but you doubt whether it will hold you. You start to do the math in your head and think, this isn't going to save me. I'm not sure it will hold me. What if it breaks? But even with all those doubts in your mind, imagine if you were to grab hold of it. Keller goes on about, with that illustration to say this way, It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to a weak faith in a strong branch. Essentially what he's saying is is the strong branch is Christ. That that saving faith comes through Christ. You, You may have worries, doubts, concerns, but if you're holding on to Christ, and Christ is holding on to you, then you are secure. And at the same time, if you have this intellectual knowledge of the gospel and you understand what the gospel is and you know all these things about the gospel but you're not actually trusting in Christ, well then for you, you're lost. Saving faith rests in the strong branch of Christ and saving faith is when we place our trust in Jesus Christ. And so you may be here this morning in a place in life where you're struggling. You may be here this morning thinking, I I just don't know that I have the faith to keep going. You may be here this morning feeling like, you know, I I just wish my faith was as strong as other people. You may be here this morning, and on the outside everything looks really good, but on the inside, if you were honest with us, you'd say, I'm dying right now. And the hope for you and the hope for us is this. It is not the strength of your faith that saves. It is the object of your faith that saves And if your faith today, friend, rests in Jesus Christ, if your trust is in Jesus Christ, then you have saving faith. So what does that look like? Well, Paul goes on to unpack this, and that's what we'll look at in this passage, beginning with that first point you're outlined. First, we see saving faith sets us free. Saving faith sets us free. Verse 1, Paul writes this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So Paul here reminds the Galatians that in Christ they are free. Well, what does that mean? What are they free from? Romans 8, 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul's writing there that that, that we are no longer under the burden of sin. We've been set free from sin and death by Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Think about that for a moment. We live in a culture that when it talks about freedom and talks about sin, it doesn't talk about being slaves to sin. It's more a sense of, I'm free to sin. (laughs) so you'll talk to people and they'll be like, well, I just want to express my freedoms. I should be free to do whatever I want. And so when it comes to this issue of sin, if you say to someone, well, actually, you're not free at all. You're a slave to sin. Often the response is, I'm not a slave to anything. I can live however I want. What's the problem with that? The problem is you can't. Because Jesus says you're a slave to sin, and I'll give you a perfect illustration of that. You think of an area in life where someone struggles, and they say, well, I can choose to do whatever I want. Well, then choose this. Stop sinning. I mean, I think that would be a good testimony of our church, wouldn't it? We are the church that no longer sins. (laughs) You know, come on in. We'll put it on the sign out front. So everybody, can we just agree to that? I didn't even ask the 830 service because, you know, they're not going to do it. But you guys, y'all are, y'all are, I've got hope in you guys. So let's just let's just decide together collectively. Today, what is this? November fourth, twenty eighteen. This is the day we all decided we're not going to stand anymore. Does that sound good? Now if it was possible, I just lost my job. But that's fine if that was possible. What's the problem with that? It's impossible. The, the, the problem with that is you may be able to grow in an area of your life, master an area of your life, go through a program that helps you with this vice or that vice, but you cannot suddenly become a perfect person. You, you can't just decide, I'm never going to do any of this, thing, this sin anymore. Jesus says it this way, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, the reason they're doing that is they are a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So Jesus says, there is freedom from sin that comes. And it doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. But to the glory of God, you can grow in these areas. And you can be free from the debt that you owe because of your sin because Jesus has paid that debt for you. You can be free in Christ. You don't need to be a slave to sin any longer. is what Jesus says and what Paul now says reiterates to the Galatians, you are no longer under condemnation. You're no longer slaves to sin. You're no longer under the burden of the Jewish ceremonial law. That's what Paul is saying here. You, You are freed from those things. You don't have to go back and do those things anymore. But notice what Paul is not saying. He's not saying that you're now free from obedience. And that's where this gets misunderstood. There are many today who will look to this passage and look to the gospel and say, well, you know, it says that in Christ I'm free, so I'm just free. Yeah. I can do whatever I want to do. No, that's not what the scripture says. It says you're no longer a slave to sin. Now you are a slave to righteousness. You're free from the law, but you're not free from Obedience. God calls us to obey his word and living according to it. And there's so much confusion here because we so often misunderstand the law of God. We talked at length about this in our study of Exodus. But again, just as a summary, we have to remember there, there are different types of laws in the Old Testament. For example, there's civil laws. Civil laws were given to Israel as a nation state, as a church state. And so Israel was given these civil laws on how they as a nation were to function. They were a nation state. It was a church state. It was Israel. This was the civil law. Those don't apply anymore. Why? Because we're not the church state. We're not a church nation anymore. We are in the nations. The gospel has spread. Are we then under any law or regulation? Absolutely. The scripture says we are to discipline one another in the church for the sake of obedience, were to follow God's law. But those civil laws, where there might be some principles that care over, those civil laws were given to Israel at a time for a purpose. They don't apply today. Also, the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was given to show God's people how to worship and to teach them how they were to be set apart from the world around them. And so, for example, you have these dietary laws, what's clean and unclean, what's holy and not holy. The whole time God's saying, listen, if you will follow these things, it will teach you something about being a set-apart people. That's where circumcision comes into this argument. But these were part of the ceremonial law. And what Paul's saying is that those laws, that's a burden that doesn't apply anymore. Why? Because the perfect has come in Christ Jesus. We, We are now free from the civil and the ceremonial. But we're not free from the moral law. The moral law is God's righteous standard that taught what is right and what is wrong. It applies all the time. And so what does Jesus do with the moral law? For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts bringing up issues of the moral law. And he doesn't say, just ignore these now. He says, you've heard, (laughs) you've been taught not to commit adultery. Jesus doesn't say, well, that doesn't apply anymore. Now, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I tell you, if you've looked with lust. You've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus says, you've been taught you should not murder. Well, I tell you, if you've called somebody a fool in your mind, you have committed murder. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus has shown us that, that, that he just elevates the moral law and helps us to see we, we can never attain righteousness in our own efforts. We can't become perfect people. We're far worse off than we think we are. Therefore, we need to trust in the one who is perfect. And so policies unpacking this is helping the people to see that, that, that we have been freed up from these ceremonial and civil laws. We're, we're still under this moral law, and the only way we can experience true freedom is to trust in christ we're no longer slaves to sin but where we so often err is we take something like this and say well i'm not a slave to sin i'm free so i can just live however i want i mean that that is our culture today that is people who will call themselves christians today and they will say things to you like well god loves me so why can't you just love me the way i am God says, don't judge. Why would you judge me? You you begin to open up the Bible and say, listen, I've got concerns because what, what is the fruit of your life is inconsistent with the scripture, and immediately what comes out? Well, who gives you the right to judge? I mean, we're free in Christ. Friends, we're not free from obedience. That's what Paul says very clearly in light of this argument in Romans six. What do we say about these things? What should we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? I mean, there's some that were distorting this so much that they were saying, listen, because you're free in Christ, you just go out there and sin all you want because then you'll experience God's grace all the more. (laughs) You, You just keep doing the wrong thing and then just remember every time that God's forgiven you and, oh, you'll just experience His grace. So the more sin, the more grace. Paul says, are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so we see how people err on one side of this as they go towards licentious living. I'm just going to do however I want. You know, I walked the aisle. I signed the card. I got dunked in the church. I'm good. I can, just, I can do whatever because, you know, I'm saved and I'm good. And there's no fruit of that in their life. But then the pendulum swings the other way. And where we can err over here is we go from licentiousness to legalism. And we go so far to the other side of that. that Well, no, you're not saved unless you do this, do this, do this, and do this. Act this way, dress this way, say these things. This is what it truly looks like to be saved. And if you don't do things exactly this way, then there's no way you truly are a believer. Thus the argument of the Judaizers. Well, unless you're circumcised, you're not really saved. One commentator I looked at this week said it this way, legalism is looking to something besides Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable and clean before God. Legalism is looking to something besides Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable and clean before God. And friends, we live in a legalistic day and age. And so many of us are looking to things other than Jesus to make ourselves feel a sense of self-righteousness. And we respond to that by saying, well, I don't know who you're talking about, preacher, but I'm pretty good over here. We, we just feel this sense of, well, I'm doing the right things because I've, I've checked off all the boxes. I, I'm okay. The Judaizer said, well, here's one of those boxes. What does Paul say? Verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept this, if you accept circumcision, the ceremonial law, Christ will be of no advantage to you. What is Paul, Paul, Paul saying? He's saying, listen, if you add anything to Jesus, you lose Jesus. If you add anything to the gospel, you lose the gospel. The moment you add something to salvation in Christ and in Christ alone means you're not trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. And now you've lost the gospel entirely. He says it how? Christ will be of no advantage to you. So what does this look like for us today? Well... There may be parts of the ceremonial law that we're not really struggling with like they were here. But there's other things. Well, if I just do this, if I do this. And it comes out all the time. Have conversations with people. I'd say almost every week I've got a conversation with someone where I'll ask them a question. If you were to stand before God today and God asked, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And whether I'm talking to you or someone else in the community or someone on the other side of the world, more often than not, I get an answer that has nothing to do with pleading the blood of Jesus Christ. And so often it's an answer about works. Well, I've tried to do this, and I've tried not to do this. And friends, the moment we slide into that argument, we are adding to the gospel. And in doing that, we are losing the gospel because we're trusting in ourselves. And that is the snare of legalism. What does Paul say about that verse 3? I testify again. (laughs) Every man who accepts circumcision, they accept this legalistic thought that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Paul says you don't understand the grace of God if you think by keeping a legalistic law that that's going to save you. You might be able to clean yourself up And you might be able to follow certain rules, but there's no way you can keep the whole law. I mean, that is the message of the Old Testament, isn't it? And yet, what do we see throughout the Old Testament? We see people who at times feel like, well, I'm doing this right and I'm doing this right, so I'm okay. And the law literally comes up and just smacks them in the head and says, no, you're you're not as okay as you think you are. But it is so easy for us to pretend. And it is so easy for us to feel better about ourselves when we get into this performance-driven faith and checking off our boxes. I was thinking about this just a couple weeks ago, as I've shared with y'all. Just a little over a week ago, I got back from some time in Poland, and while I was there in Poland, I went uh, with a friend of mine who is at a church south of Bowling Green. His church is considering a partnership in Poland, so this was an opportunity for him to meet Uh, the pastor there, be a part of the ministry there, and so uh, before we went, even while we were there, I was just telling him lots of information about different people and different things we would encounter, just kind of preparing him, and uh, there was one couple we were having dinner with that night, and those of you who've been to Poland know Staszek and Faye, and if you've ever been in a vehicle with Staszek, you know Staszek is a crazy driver. Now, I say that if you've never been overseas, you don't quite have an appreciation for this, because a lot of people in Eastern Europe, no offense to those from Eastern Europe, but they're crazy drivers, but Stashik's a particularly crazy driver, even by Polish standards. And so I'm talking to Travis before he'd go to their house going, man, this is going to be, I don't know how many roller coasters you've been on, but this is, you're going to experience something tonight, you know. This this is this guy, I've never been in a car where somebody drives this wild, and so after dinner, we're on the way to the van, and Travis, he's almost giddy about it, you know, we're going and we get in the van, and man, Stashik you know, puts a seatbelt on and gets everything arranged in the car, and all of a sudden, he's the most cautious driver I've been ever been in a vehicle with. And I'm like, man, well, I haven't been here in three years. Maybe this is a work of the Spirit. I don't know. but. And then I start noticing as we're driving, and I mean, everybody's zooming past us. He's going under the speed limit. I start noticing on his phone, it keeps dinging, and these, keep, these monetary amounts keep coming up on his phone. And so I ask about it, and he starts to explain, well, yeah, with my insurance company, uh, I've got this app, and it monitors my driving. And as long as I obey the laws and I drive under the speed limit and I don't brake too fast or accelerate too fast, he goes through this whole list of things. Every time I do one of these things right, I get a reduction on my insurance. (laughs) He's like, it's great. And I'm thinking, it's great. We're going to live through this experience. I mean, he's just driving so well. He is performing great in this vehicle. And then Travis asked him the question, well, I mean, what do you do when you, what, what happens when you break the speed limit? What happens when you do the wrong thing? What happens if you're in a hurry? Stasek said, well, I just turn the app off for that. <laughs> <laughs> then, then I just drive however I want because <laughs> nobody's watching me then. And as I reflected on that later, I thought, man, what, what a picture of so many of us in this performance-driven faith. We think that we're getting credit from God when we do the right thing. <laughs> As if it's just dinging up on our account. Oh, you, you know, you, you didn't lose your temper there, Richard. Well, that's, you know, that's at least 20 points. And, man, you really held, held your tongue there. And Oh, you did the right thing. and Man, you gave when nobody was looking. And now oh, you just did all these things. But then we just kind of shut the whole app down at times, don't we? I'm going to do what I want to do over here. I deserve this. I've done so good over here. Well, I should be able to cheat a little bit over here. And we get in this performance-driven mentality. And friends, that is legalism. And that is not trusting in Jesus Christ. Saving faith protects us from this, but if we're not careful, we slide right into it. And in doing so, we completely miss out on the gospel. That's why in verse 4, Paul says, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Listen, Paul is not saying, Well, you completely understood the gospel, responded to the gospel, didn't obey the gospel, and now you've lost the gospel. Paul says, you never understood it to begin with. You do not understand the grace of God if you think the grace of God is dependent on your performance. If you think that God helps those who help themselves, in case you just woke up, that's not in the Bible. That's in our legalistic heart. Well, I need God to do something, so I'll do something for God, and then God will do something for me. that might work with people, but that's not the way God operates. That is a legalistic mindset. That is not an understanding of grace. That is actually abandoning grace. Because what grace teaches us is that our focus needs to be primarily and singularly on Jesus Christ and on Christ alone. And that's where we go next in your outline there. Point three. Saving faith places our focus on Christ. Verse five. Paul says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves Eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. See, legalism teaches us that we can become righteous through our actions. Righteousness is available now if we check the boxes and do the right things. Saving faith, however, teaches that righteousness comes through Christ and Christ alone. Legalism says, look at what you've done, look at what you are doing, perform better. Saving faith says look to Christ and what Christ has done and what Christ is doing and what Christ will do and place your hope there. This is what faith is always described as in the scripture. Putting our hope, our trust in Jesus, not in ourselves. So Hebrews 11, which we call that that chapter of faith, that hall of faith, it begins with that definition of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. This is a faith that is forward-looking on Jesus and on what is to come. That's why Paul says here, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Eagerly wait. Now, I think in English that can almost seem like an oxymoron. But because eager, we tend to think of almost as impatience. I'm eager, I'm anxious, I want to hurry up. In waiting, will we identify that with patience. <laughs> so how can you be impatiently patient? It doesn't quite work, does it? But in the Greek language, this is one word. And it means to wait with excitement. To just eagerly be excited about that which is coming. You might think of it this way. Uh, yesterday, uh, Caroline and I, took a little trip to, to Lowe's. We had a dryer that went bad. We had to get a new dryer, so we're on the way there. And I'm not sure what prompted her to ask this, but she asked me the question, uh, Daddy, what's your favorite holiday? What did I say? You're not going to tell. Anybody want to guess what my favorite holiday is who's been by my house in December? Christmas. Christmas. I love Christmas. Now, I realize when I say that that I am among some scrooges. Because some of y'all have already gone into the store and seen Christmas decorations. You're just like, well, I can't believe they got Christmas decorations out already. And, roo, 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 roo. Scrooge. Put, leave them up all year long. That's fine with me. Well, I can't believe the Christmas decorations are still up. Scrooge. I love Christmas. Christmas is my favorite holiday. For some of you, not so much anymore. But there probably was a day when it was. Do you remember that day? Do you remember what it was like as a child to eagerly wait for Christmas? (laughs) You couldn't wait for it to get there. You were so excited about it. You were just looking forward to it. You were anticipating it. You couldn't wait for that morning. Paul says here, we are eagerly waiting. What are we waiting for? The hope of righteousness. He's saying you don't have it fully yet. (laughs) But you have hope that it's coming. You don't make yourself righteous. Jesus does that. There is this sanctifying work from the day we become a believer to the day he takes us home or returns for us where he is sanctifying us. He's making us more and more like himself, less and less like ourselves. But in those days, we are going to struggle. And legalism offers us nothing for that struggle. I mentioned that Caroline and I were on the way to Lowe's to get a dryer. This was just one of those weekends where everything broke. The dryer smells like it's catching on fire. It goes bad, go outside. The car's got a flat tire on it. And I don't know about you, but when those things hit for me, I'm not singing hymns. Kids come down for breakfast, maybe they're singing. Hey, Daddy, how is it? It's just not that good. What's for breakfast? A broken dryer. How's that sound? You want to chew on a flat tire? we got that too. My my response in the flesh in those moments, as my family can witness to, is not what it should be or what I would hope it would be. So often it is a response in the flesh of frustration and just anger. Now, I'm probably the only person, I know you're laughing because none of you identify with that at all. But let's say you imagine a situation where you did. Legalism offers you nothing. You know what legalistic tells the father who's lost his temper when everything breaks? Legalism says, well, just try harder. (laughs) Just make a vow. Just stop doing it. Good Christians shouldn't yell at their kids, Richard. Pastors shouldn't lose their temper car a while. If you just would stop doing those things, just stop it. And we listen to that nonsense, and we'll sit the family down, and we'll say, you know what? Daddy lost his temper, but I'm just going to promise to everybody right now I'm not going to lose my temper again. You want to hear laughter? There's laughter. Why? Because they've experienced it. They know I'm going to lose my temper. I still got three more tires on that car, and a lot more tires on other cars that can go flat i got a washer as old as a dryer. It's probably going to stop working. The more stuff you have, the more what? The more problems, the more stuff breaks. There's going to be plenty to come. Opportunities for me to lose it again. That's what we call it. We just call it losing it, don't we? And legalism says, well, just stop losing it. The saving faith offers something better. Because saving faith says, stop trying and start trusting. And in those moments, repent and confess that you indeed are a sinner's in need of the grace of God. We might think pretty good of ourselves and then something like that happens and we realize, oh yeah. And, and preach the gospel to yourself and to your family. Have that family conference. But rather than saying, I'm never going to do this again, you say, this is why we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ died for dads who were going to fail their kids. Christ died for people who were going to lose it in anger. Christ died that we might come to Him by His grace and not by our performance. Because if this rested on our performance, I'm going straight to hell. And you are too. And we are only saved by the grace of God. And when we understand that by saving faith, then it takes a miserable day when everything breaks, and it can turn it into an opportunity for repentance and rejoicing and glorying in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And Paul says here, we are looking to a day when we don't lose it anymore. And a new heaven and a new earth, nobody says the wrong thing. Nobody's a jerk. Nobody's mean. Nobody just lets it slip. Nobody loses it. Why? Because we are glorified with our Savior and we experience what it truly looks like to be righteous before a holy God. And that is a work of Christ and Christ alone. And if you are trusting in yourself one iota, Paul says, then the gospel for you is worthless. But if you understand in this moment your desperate need, then the gospel is of infinite worth. Our works do not save us, but our faith, saving faith, should result in works. Which brings us to our fourth point. Saving faith produces faithful works. There's a typo there, you can just scratch out that end. Saving faith produces faithful works. So our works don't produce saving faith, but our saving faith produces faithful works. Look at what Paul says, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. It didn't count for anything, but only faith working through love. So again, the Judaizers' argument was, unless you do these things according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul says that, These teachings from the Old Testament, they're not bad things in and of themselves, but if you're trusting in them for your salvation, then you need to understand they have no value. In fact, literally here, that that translation of, of does it count for anything? It means it has no power. He's saying these are useless works. They're rubbish and they're garbage. They do not have the power to save you. Only Christ has the power to save. So what value the do works have? Well, in that case, they have none. But he does say works, there, there are different works that do count and that do have power and do have value. And what does he say? It's not circumcision, it's not the ceremonial law, but only faith working through love. And so Paul says very clearly here, Our works don't save us, but our salvation should result in works. And these works then count for something because they're being used by the power of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us and make us more and more like Jesus. And that is of worth in the kingdom. And what that looks like now, Paul is going to unpack, so stick with us. (laughs) We're going to continue to go there in the rest of chapter 5, chapter 6. What do these works of the Spirit look like in our life as we understand saving faith? But but it always has to start with saving faith first. And so that's where we'll leave off this week with, again, that question. We started with what is saving faith. We'll end with this. Do you have saving faith? And go back to that opening illustration. Being on that cliffside, losing your footing, and you're going to fall and meet your demise. But there is a firm, strong branch there ready to save you. Have you put your trust in that firm branch? You may think, well, I'm not sure it'll help me. I'm not sure God wants someone like me. I'm not sure God would save someone like me. And friends, again, it is not the strength of your faith that will save you. It is the object of your faith. But here's the reality. We are in a far worse situation than being on the side of a cliff about to fall. This is what the scripture says our situation is. Isaiah 59 verse 2 Your iniquities, your sin have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. Our sin is deserving of the full wrath of a holy God. But there is hope Isaiah also says this in Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor His ear dull that it cannot hear. That that is the glory of the gospel, friends. No one is so far gone that God's hand cannot reach out and grasp them. The reality of the gospel is not reach out and grab onto the branch. The reality of the gospel is God is reaching out to you through Christ now. Will you respond in repentance And in faith, or will you stubbornly continue to trust in the work of your hands? The gospel says, flee that foolishness and trust in Jesus. He is the strong branch. He is the only branch. Will you put your trust in him today? Let's stand together as we consider these things and as I pray for us. Father, I do ask that you would do the work that only you can do. My words can change zero hearts. Our best laid arguments and gospel presentations cannot bring the dead to life. But Lord, in in one moment, your spirit can do... (coughs) What a thousand sermons can never do. Your your spirit can bring the dead to life. Your your spirit can give hope to the hopeless. Your your spirit can take those today who are just struggling in their faith and weak in their faith and, and who are frustrated in their faith and who are suffering and don't know why. And your spirit, Lord, can do what words can never do. You can bring hope and you can bring truth. You can bring repentance. You can bring saving faith. You can bring trust into the unbelieving heart and into the heart that's struggling to believe. So Father, I pray you would do that work now as we respond to your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.